0: The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries.
1: It's The Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change. From the studios of X-Ray FM, I'm Anne Kirkpatrick. On this week's episode of the Nonprofit Hour, we'll be hearing from David Perry of Zenger Farm.
2: census tract that we're in is considered a food desert, which means that there's not easy access to fresh fruits and vegetables.
1: Then, Megan Kovacs of Raphael House. Domestic and sexual
3: violence are things that have an impact on all of us. They're things that affect our entire community. They're things that impact the health of our entire community. And it's really important and integral for all of us to start having conversations about that.
1: But first, we'll be kicking off the episode with a look at the Bravo Youth Orchestra in a story brought to you by X-Ray FM producer and Radio Youth graduate, Solomon Murphy.
0: It's Monday after school at Rosa Parks Elementary, and the music room is full of around 50 students warming up on their half-sized violins, violas, cellos, and basses. Next, the students get a quick reminder lesson in time signatures and counting. And
2: one and two, and one and two. If you're looking at my shoes, you won't know why we're saying these numbers. Look at your music once again.
0: But this is not your typical music class. This is the Bravo Youth Orchestra, a tuition-free after-school program that brings intensive orchestral music instruction to second, third, and fourth graders.
4: Uh, My name is Seth Truby. I'm the executive director of Bravo, and uh, I'm actually one of the co-founders.
0: In November of 2012, Seth wanted to start a youth music program, specifically one inspired by El Sistema.
4: Nobody was trying what El Sistema does, which is uh, social change through intensive orchestral music.
0: Founded in Venezuela, El Sistema is a system of youth orchestras that serve more than 500,000 children each year from all over the world, with about 80% of whom that live in poverty. When word got out that Seth was trying to kickstart this kind of program, He was contacted by Dr. Bonnie Reagan, a longtime public health advocate and singer who was trying to do the same. So they combined their efforts. It was worth creating
4: a new nonprofit to pursue a mission that nobody else was pursuing here in town with that same methodology.
0: And with this, Bravo was created, making it the first El Sistema-affiliated program in Oregon. But now Bravo needed a location. Many schools were considered to help pioneer this new idea. Rosa Parks Elementary School was the best fit.
4: It was a great choice for a lot of reasons. The fact that Rosa Parks is the poorest school in the city means that we're meeting our target population. We're trying to bring the absolute best music to the children who are least likely to get it otherwise.
0: Music can be scarce or even non-existent in many Oregon schools. Rosa Parks was nearly seven years with no stable program due to funding. So there was a huge amount of enthusiasm and support from the school's administration and the community. With this active partnership, the program has
2: thrived.
0: Back in the classroom, the children are getting their next lesson. And even in a room full of energetic young musicians holding delicate instruments and being asked to sit quietly, the class goes along smoothly.
4: We try to make sure that our classes are well-structured, that the content of the class is appropriate for the kids' ability and that it's worthwhile. Because if you have a great lesson that's engaging, that's appropriately challenging, you
0: can hold the kids' attention. And there is plenty of rich musical material to keep the students busy. Although this is a youth orchestra, it doesn't only stick to Beethoven and Mozart. Along with classical music, it teaches fiddle tunes, folk songs, pop songs, and songs from all over the world. Along with providing diverse content, Bravo believes it's important to have small class sizes and keep the student-teacher ratio to 10 to 1 or less.
4: We also are actively recruiting community volunteers because that extra adult in the class can mean all the difference between a very well-run sectional and something that's
0: kind of on the edge of chaotic. Retired librarian Ann Backinson is one of these volunteers. She helps the classroom stay on track and accompanies the children on the piano.
1: There's a real sense of community in Bravo. I think um, the kids know that the teachers care about them and are here um, for them. And uh, more than one student has said how much Bravo has affected his or her life or changed his or her life. Uh,
4: For some kids, it's sports. For some kids, it's quietly reading a book. Uh, For other kids, they're more social and they want to be in a club of some sort. But for some kids, it's music. Music is the thing that's going to give them that spark that's going to keep them engaged and excited about school and can carry them through.
0: And this is where the true power of Bravo shines through, nurturing the positive effects of music on a child's development. Be it shown through improved school participation or even better behavior at home. The list of benefits from this program is impressive. Learning ways that one can express themselves through music is an outlet that many of these students have come to appreciate and hopefully will use throughout the rest of their lives bravo intends to help current students and future students who need that the most for many years to come for the nonprofit hour i'm solomon murphy
1: Solomon produced that story as part of the Media Institute for Social Changes Radio U program in partnership with X-Ray FM. Thanks, Solomon. Now we turn to our host, Phil Bussey.
5: This is Phil Bussy. It's the Nonprofit Hour. And I am lucky enough to have David Perry from Zanger Farms here in the studio with us. How are you doing, David?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
5: Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a fun time to to talk about farming, isn't it? I mean, farmers markets are in full swing. Um I'm sure you guys you guys are busy all the time, but now has to be a really particularly busy part of the year.
2: Absolutely. We definitely reach a fever pitch right around now. Uh the farmers are getting ready for the very first weeks of CSA pickup and Lent's Farmers Market starting up, so it's it's pretty exciting.
5: And so we have we have to plot uh, Zanger Farm a bit here, both both geographically and philosophically. Sure. Uh, let's start geographically. Where where are you guys located?
2: So we're one of the few farms that's still inside Portland city limits. We're on Southeast Foster Road, just before you get to One Twenty Second. So outer southeast Portland. And and that's how how are
5: you there? I mean, what? Obviously this this is a holdover from 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 something else, but. Uh, somehow, people have held on to this property.
2: That's right. Yeah, we've been a nonprofit organization for about sixteen years now. But before that, it was an operating uh, commercial farm. It was uh, known as the Mount Scott Dairy for a while, and it was operated by a family known as the Zengers, and that's where, that's where we got our name from. And it was operating for about a uh, hundred years. Wow,
5: that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Uh, and and there's still our there's still livestock on the farm.
2: Nope. We, uh, we converted to mixed vegetable production. Uh, the, the livestock, the dairy are all gone. We do still have the dairy barn and use that as a center of operations. Uh, but now our livestock are limited to a pretty good-sized flock of chickens that we, uh, we move around the fields. Uh, we get a flock of turkeys every year. And a whole lot of bees. We work with the Portland Urban Beekeepers to to maintain a pretty large apiary, which is
5: incredibly important right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's 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 diminishing uh, populations, and, and uh, uh, finding those spots where bees can, can land and house is is critical.
2: Yeah, yeah, we love having them. It's a great relationship working with uh, with Pub.
5: So so Zanger Farm is unique because it's it's within Portland city limits. Uh and and but it's it's unique also because and and your your job, you're the program director. Yeah. And what, what are some of those programs?
2: So we're working in a lot of areas and we we try to approach food systems work from a few different angles. Uh one of them being access. Uh, I mentioned briefly that we have uh the Lentz International Farmers Market. Uh The census tract that we're in is considered a food desert, which means that there's not easy access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So the Lentz International Farmers Market's a a great way that we can do that. We also work around uh, the CSA, that's Community Supported Agriculture. We've done some innovative work to try to get that more available to people. Specifically, we've made our CSA available to um, people who participate in the SNAP program, uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and uh, that allows people who previously couldn't get uh, access to a CSA now they're they're able to use SNAP benefits to purchase it.
5: And, and if I can just break in for for a little bit, David. I mean, the the SNAPS are I guess what colloquially was was known as food stamps. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's an educational component to that as well in terms of nutritional value of of getting out and getting fresh fresh fruits and fresh vegetables.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Education is really core to what we're doing across the board. Uh, So in the case of of the CSA, we're also providing uh, cooking workshops and classes to families and individuals who uh, uh, maybe aren't familiar with some of the the fruits and vegetables that are out there. We want to make sure that they're uh, able to utilize them and get the most out of it.
5: And, and and are you do, having school groups come to visit you? I mean, how does that? How, yeah. how, how do you how do you get people from you know their homes to or their
2: neighborhoods to your farm? Right. the The bulk of what we're doing really is those school groups. We have about uh, about ten thousand people visiting the farm each year now. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's pretty big. And and fifteen years ago, we were hitting in the hundreds. We were you know two hundred fifty, three hundred kids a year, and and now we're up to ten thousand. Uh, We have a really close partnership with the David Douglas School District where every fifth grader comes out to the farm three times a year to see it during different seasons. Uh, And then our educators go in and and bring a a worm bin into the classroom to talk about ecosystems. And I'm sure
5: that's fascinating and disgusting to kids.
2: They love it. Yeah, they love getting in there and seeing all the different critters that live in there. Uh, and then this time of year, we're we're wrapping up field trips and gearing up for summer camps, and uh, that's that's the primary education track we're doing this summer.
5: Yeah, which so I was going to ask. I mean, that that it is tough to have a farm in an educational program because it doesn't sync with the growing season. I mean, it, yeah. you you can plant and you can harvest, but you're you're missing the bulk of it. And you supplement. You you create a bridge by having some summer camps.
2: Yeah, the summer camps are a great time for the kids to kind of come out and see the farm in full swing, uh, to hit harvest season really at the peak. Uh, you know, the, the fall certainly a great time for that as well, and when kids come out and visit in the fall field trips, they get to see a lot of things harvested, and they get to taste a lot of the produce, which is fantastic. But the summer camp kids have the uh, the excitement of getting to pick berries off the bush and some of those uh, summer tomatoes and things that the, the kids who visit in the fall don't get. So summer camp is a great time, especially for the cooking and tasting and eating, for sure.
5: This is Phil Bussy. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with David Perry from Zanger Farms. And you, you've brought in some interesting music.
2: Yeah, we, we, uh, we operate the Lentz International Farmers Market. That's uh, every Sunday uh, from, from 10 to 3. And every week we'll have some different musical selections so we we brought a few uh, artists that we've worked with in the past great let's let's kick off with one
6: para sacar esa pernita gris <laughs> que tienes tu al corazón dale vuelta la razón dar un escaloncito más que te saque de ese pantano te aconsejo respirar un esté apagado
2: y que siente que todo ha terminado y no te sientes tan tirado. Y quieres tus sueños cumplir y te siente que estás derrotado.
6: Lo que debes es volar, acarices energía y que tienes, siéntete seguro y vuelas, cumple tu deseo, arriba y alto.
5: This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. That was just one of the artists uh, who was played at the Lentz International Farmers Market, uh, which which Zanger Farm hosts. And I am talking with David Perry. Uh, Before the music break, we were talking about some of the summer programs you had. That has to be eye-opening for any kid to To pull a carrot from the ground and eat it right there, to pull a, a berry from a bush, and that idea of food not coming from a supermarket
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really great for them to see uh, that things don't magically come in plastic boxes and packages that's that's certainly fantastic. Uh, I think that one of the other things that local food, not just Zenger farm, but a lot of local farms are able to do is is have some of those. Uh, heirloom varieties of things too. So uh, a lot of times, what we see in the grocery store are, are selected because they're the ones with the longest shelf life or ones that can be transported over long distances. But local farms are really able to to bring some of these lesser known varieties out. Uh, you know, a great example from this past summer was we grew these peppers called uh, Jimmy Nardello peppers. Called call, it, call it, say that again. Jimmy Nardellos, and I hope I'm saying that right. My farmers may be cringing right now, but. <laughs> The, uh, the Jimmy Nardello pepper just had this amazing, sweet, peppery flavor that was just delicious. I've never tasted anything like it, and I never would have known about it had I not been there. So uh, I think that that's the real value is that, the, you know, along with seeing where the food's coming from, they're get to, getting to taste things that uh, are a little bit harder to find. And how
5: much—I um, mean, obviously you have a connection— uh, with with the kids that come there, how much of this is a long term relationship? I mean, how many of the families are returning there? Uh, do, do do you see development in their interest in food or their their cooking eating habits? Yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's kind of an exciting time at the farm because we are starting to see things like that. You know, we've been doing summer camps for a few years now, and we do have quite a few kids who have been coming year after year after year and are really. Um, starting to feel like it is their their farm as well uh, teen programming is an area that we're we're actively trying to grow now that we have some kids who are starting to grow into that age group mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we're we're excited to we're partnering with a few different organizations around town to to bring some teens in and and I, I would think I mean teens
5: are are obviously different than than 10 or 11 or 12 year olds in yeah. that. No offense to 10, 11, 12 eleven, twelve-year-olds, but like teens can do some some more work and be a bit more autonomous.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and they and they're very excited by that. That's mm-hmm. the the kind of experience they're looking for, and and uh, and we're we're trying to find the best fits for that, and how we can really engage that age range for sure.
5: And now, just to keep trying to get the the parameters on on Zanger Farms. I mean, this is you're open to everyone, correct? But it's it's specifically towards. Uh, uh, populations in in that in the Lens neighborhood.
2: Yeah, we really focus on the neighborhoods around us uh, with a lot of our programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lentz neighborhood, Powellhurst Gil- Powell Gilbert neighborhood, um, Pleasant Valley. Uh,
5: Which is also, I mean. So some of those neighborhoods uh, have very distinct demographics in terms of uh, there's some of the Vietnamese populations out there. Uh, there's, I don't know, if Russian populations had traditionally been out there. Um, yeah. That has to uh, uh, be another interesting outreach in terms of just cultural differences. Uh, how does how does that work for you guys? And what what what, what do you guys do to, do to accommodate that?
2: i think the the Lentz international farmers market's probably the best example of what we're doing there um you know certainly many of our programs we offer bilingual when we can uh and and engage with uh whoever's whoever's attending but the Lentz international farmers market really is uh you know it's one of the only markets that has that international focus in town. Uh, we've got varieties of produce that are there that you won't find anywhere else. They're very culturally specific. The... Such such as, oh gosh, uh, half of them I don't even know the names yeah. of. Uh, you know, episode squash is one that comes to mind. Uh, things like that.
5: I know it just has to be interesting. I mean, I, I would imagine that you guys are are learning quite a bit. Uh, from the people that are coming there as well. I mean, you're yeah. you're getting as like you're saying it's the only, one of the only international farmers markets in in Portland if not the only. Right. And uh getting that that sort of that melting pot as it were.
2: Yeah, and the vendors speak a wide range of different languages. Uh you mentioned a couple, Vietnamese and Russian and Chinese and Spanish are are the main languages that that are at that market, but uh certainly there, that community, the East Portland community, is is very diverse. A lot of different languages spoken, a lot of different cultures. Recent immigrants and refugees, so it's exciting. It's a it's a great place to be working. We we love those neighborhoods.
5: And when when is the international? When is the the farmers market? The Lentz International's farmers
2: market. It's on Sundays from ten to three, and it goes right up through um uh, basically through the end of October.
5: And again, your address is or the address of the farmers it's market. It's
2: right in right in Lent's Town Center at ninety second and Foster.
5: This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm speaking with David Perry from Zanger Farms. Uh, We're going to take another musical break, and this is another musician who has played at the Lentz International Farmer's Market. Well, you say, well, you do When your whole life is through How do you go, what do you know Come to me and say hello I ain't
0: got no home, I ain't got no home,
5: I was born to roam, I was born to roam. is and coral is coral. I promise you there is no more. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Media Institute for Social Changes nonprofit hour. We are pleased today to have David Perry from Zanger Farms. You guys are in your busy season right now with farmers markets, summer programs. Um, uh, you came from OMSI, is that correct? That's right,
2: yeah. I moved to Portland in 2006 and started at OMSI then. I, I was there for about uh, about seven years, I guess.
5: What were you doing at OMSI?
2: Uh started as a floor educator, and then uh, when I left, I was the director of museum education, so the, all the stuff that happened on the floor in the museum itself
5: and and omzi is is very much hands on. It seems like there's some real probably some easy transitions from omzi to, to zanger farm,
2: yeah, absolutely. They both work in that same realm of uh informal education you know the the learning that happens outside of school uh, and in a lot of ways uh it's it's just an outside version of omzi It still has uh what I would consider labs. there's different areas around the farm that that uh, you can get hands-on and really experiment.
5: And was this, this was your, I mean, is this the dream job for you that you have right now, or is this, this is what you wanted, what you set out to do, or did you accidentally end up here?
2: It's a pretty great place, that's for sure. Uh, It was somewhat of an accident that I ended up there. I wasn't particularly looking for a job. I was doing some consulting, and in the process of uh, some work there, saw that they were looking for a program director and it was a really exciting time for the farm, so uh, I, I jumped right in. You know, we're in the process of wrapping up a uh, 2.3 million dollar capital project, uh, so that was really where the position I'm in came from was uh, to help steward the organization through that time and and prepare to use that new building uh, that we call the Urban Grange. And and
5: you're coming at this from an educator's perspective, then. Uh, do you have farming in your back- background?
2: A little bit. I spent a little bit of time growing up on a farm in Alabama that uh, that my fa- my father lived on, so that was pretty fun. That was a beef cattle operation, and uh, sweet potato starts was their big uh, production. So I-, I was driving a tractor pretty young, that's that's for sure. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a farming background, though.
5: And, and uh, you moved here um, to Oregon with your wife, and she's a chef. That's right. Yeah. So is, is is that where the food
2: interest comes from? Certainly a big part of it. That's that's for sure. And uh we did we you know when we chose where we were going to move from the Boston area, certainly Portland had a lot of appeal just because of the the food culture here.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. And how much uh are are you bringing home crates of food for her and and CSAs? <laughs>
2: yeah absolutely. We did the CSA last year, so uh, that was a, that was pretty convenient having the CSA right outside of my office. That's for sure. Uh, and and it is nice having that connection to the farm, I think for her. Uh, I know last year she purchased some quints from the farm and used that in some of her recipes. and yeah, it's a good connection. Uh, and then this year she's gonna be. Uh, i guess going even farther on that connection she's going to be one of the vendors at the Lentz international farmers market and will be working out of the new urban grange kitchen so
5: which let's let's use that as a transition to this the yeah. urban grange kitchen so 2.3 million dollars that's yeah. that's a big sum of money that's a lot of zucchini to sell that's <laughs> true yeah I, it, can you, I know you're the program director there, but what, what insights can you give us to to the revenue flow? I mean, certainly some's coming from the, it's, yeah. it's nice to have a nonprofit that has a product that can be sold, yep. but I, I, I'm guessing you're not raising 2.3 million from proceeds alone.
2: No, it was a great capital campaign in that it was very community driven. The very first donors to the capital campaign were the, um, was uh, Bridgetown Naturals, which is the building right next door to us. And they uh, they came in with the very first gift uh, and one of the largest gifts to, to really kick it off. So the fact that it started from the business community and our, uh, our neighbors was an excellent beginning to that campaign. Uh, we've seen some other corporate support from folks like New Seasons Market and Bob's Red Mill. Uh, some government support from the city of Portland, uh, BES and uh, PDC, the East Multnomah Soil and Water Conservation District. Uh, so, really a wide grassroots effort, uh, as well as individuals. Our board was a major source of uh, source of donations.
5: And and the support, what are what are they hoping to uh, facilitate by supporting yeah. you?
2: In, in some ways, the building will facilitate the organization overall. Uh, we've been crammed into a tiny farmhouse uh, that was renovated about seven years ago, and it's it's only a, a few hundred square feet, and we're now up to 11 staff, so it's, it's pretty tight in there. And it was really our only indoor area to teach classes. Uh, so this new facility will have some administrative space. Uh, it'll really act as a headquarters in that regard. But what we're most excited about is the, the large classroom space that's directly connected to a uh, licensed kitchen facility. There's a roll-up door between the two, so we'll be able to really connect them and have that uh, cooking education spill out into the classroom, and uh, that'll be a, a great asset for us. And, and this, is,
5: this has happened? The building's built?
2: Almost, yeah. yeah. We're expecting that uh, it'll be open and ready to go in the next couple weeks. Uh, we've got summer camps coming up, and they'll be in that building utilizing it. So they're, it's really down to the point of finishing touches at this point.
5: It's exciting. That's very yeah, exciting. Absolutely. You know, I, I was amazed by something that you said before, which is that you were up to 11 staff.
2: Yes, yeah. That's
5: that's a big team.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
5: And that growth has happened mostly in the last few years,
2: that's true. Yeah, the past five years has really seen the biggest growth in the organization, that's for sure.
5: What And what, what, what made that change?
2: Yeah, I think that the renovation of the farmhouse really catalyzed a lot of it. Uh, having that facility to be able to use for programming for classes and camps, uh, I think really took the operation from uh, uh, kind of a, a small grassroots effort to something that had a little bit more polish to it and that catalyzed some growth. And we're expecting that the the new building, the Urban Grange, is going to do that again. We're really expecting it's going to uh, have a big impact on the organization and allow us to have more kids come out to camp each summer and uh really dial up the experience that they're going to get.
5: And how how much has uh the the general attitude about farm table, CSAs, uh let's throw Michelle Obama into that yeah. mix. How yeah. much has that affected uh for lack of a better word your popularity at Zanger Farms?
2: I think you bring up a great point that it's it's a pretty hot topic right now in a, in a lot of ways. Uh certainly the local food uh, the desire for local food and, and people seeking that out that trend is is growing rapidly each year and the amount of sales of local food is is rapidly going up so that's a, that's a great indicator uh, we're also seeing uh, a lot of attention from um, uh, the most recent farm bill the 2014 farm bill had a lot of new programs to promote local food uh, and also to help with some of that SNAP support that we were talking about earlier, um, helping people with SNAP uh, incentivize purchasing local food from farmers markets and things. Um, and and as you mentioned with Michelle Obama's programs, um, I think the problem with childhood obesity and obesity in general is is a major issue. And then all of the health issues associated with that um, there is a lot of attention on that right now and and people see what we're doing as a as a possible way to address that
5: and and obviously you have a lot to focus on at the farm uh, you're focused on uh, the outer southeast neighborhoods in, in Portland how much though are you especially with 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 your you know uh, program development educational programs how much are you intermingling with other programs either within Portland or within within Oregon. How much of this is a community?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a developing field, which is exciting to watch. I think as as some of the organizations that are similar to Zenger Farm are coalescing, it's it's interesting to watch the field develop. We work really closely uh, with a lot of organizations in Portland, certainly, and beyond that, throughout the state, uh, we're we're active participants in some. Uh, food systems groups that are either formed or developing, uh, and and that's uh, it's a great network to be a part of. Um, a, you know, a good example is when we were working on that SNAP CSA model, we um, worked throughout the state to dis- distribute it and disseminate it out to other farmers who would be interested in that model. And and
5: also and and I would think that the the actual education components are becoming more sophisticated. Uh, as as this field becomes more developed, I mean I know that there's statistics of you know kids who pay attention to where their food is or actually like their their grades go up and the, there's yeah. and more involvement in school, which is can you explain some of that connection? yeah,
2: yeah you know, I think that when you're when you're working with kids, obviously the just having students be well fed is an important part and we're seeing a lot of programs in schools around um not just getting food to kids so that they're well nourished for their school day, but also connections of schools to farms uh, that's a it's it's actually it's a hot topic right now there's the farm to school bill coming up uh, so uh, it's definitely a great connection between what we're doing and and the schools and education and um, we'd love to see more of that happening
5: that's for sure. Wonderful. That's it's Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. We've been talking with David Perry from Zanger Farms. Uh, do go visit them this summer. Uh, they are in Outer Southeast. Uh, every Sunday from 10 to 3, the Lentz International Farmer's Market is a great way to connect with them and learn a little bit more about them. David, thank you so much for coming in today.
2: Absolutely, much appreciated.
5: We're gonna go with one more of their music artists. This is somebody that who who has played at the Lentz International Farmers Market, and perhaps you'll catch them if you stop by there.
2: Гостиной без огней, рояль был весь раскрыт, и струны в нем дрожали, как и сердца у нас над песнью твоей, Ты пела до зари резака и занимая, что ты одна любовь, что нет любвиной, и так.
1: Welcome back to the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change and produced in the studios of X-Ray FM. I'm Ann Kirkpatrick. Next up on the show this week, our host, Phil Bussey, discusses how education can help prevent domestic violence with Megan Kovacs of Raphael House.
5: This is Phil Bussey. It is the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Megan Kovacs of Raphael House. How are you doing?
3: I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
5: Absolutely. We really appreciate you coming in. And so Raphael House is, you are the education coordinator there, correct? I am. And it is the second oldest domestic violence shelter in Portland. Tell me, uh, what what an education coordinator does. Uh, at a domestic violence shelter?
3: Absolutely. So we recognize um, as a movement and at Raphael House specifically and especially that domestic violence is something that impacts a lot of people in our community and impacts a lot of people directly. And we need resources and support services um, to provide you know, healing and help and housing and lots of different things for people who are directly experiencing domestic violence right now or have in the immediate past. Um, But what we also know is that domestic and sexual violence are things that have an impact on all of us. They're things that affect our entire community. They're things that impact the health of our entire community. And it's really important and integral for all of us to start having conversations about that, to you know, not only to help provide better support for people who are experiencing it, but to hopefully try to stop it from happening, to prevent it from happening, to look at the reasons why this happens, the things that exist in our community, the social norms that exist in our community that allow for this to happen, and how we can unpack and challenge and change those things.
5: So does that come through uh, education campaigns, or is that coming through one-on-one discussions? What What's what are you putting out there then?
3: So it's in a number of different ways. So we provide education in the community in a number of ways. Um, most broadly, we go into high schools, I go into high schools and middle schools and talk to teenagers um, about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality. So really promoting what it means to have healthier norms in relationships, what it means to like understand how to treat a partner with respect, how to have healthy communication, how to practice equality in relationships, essentially. Um, and that, along with that, um, that kind of one-on-one education or education and health classes, um, you know, I also work on some prevention policy, both locally and statewide. Um, So working in Multnomah County and in the state of Oregon to help all of us, you know, have these conversations in better ways, um, to, you know, help parents reinforce these messages with their kids, to, you know, talking with legislature, legislators, to um, help them better understand the ways that policy impact the people who are both experiencing this and our entire community
5: I want, I want to talk first about the the work that you do with the, with the teenagers and high schoolers I know it's hard to generalize but where are you seeing the starting point for most of these teenagers as far as their understanding of what's a healthy relationship are they far along in that process or is it a half-baked idea is it on often on the wrong track and you're re-gearing, or is it often on the right track and you're just encouraging it to go further?
3: I think that depends on where I am and who I'm talking to. Oftentimes, like geographically where you are, or yeah, I mean, in Oregon, in the you know, in the state of Oregon, in Portland, even depending on where you are, people communities have very different understandings of what's normal and what's healthy, and you know what makes sense or what a relationship should look like, um, and. That is communicated in lots of ways, especially to youth. Um, you know, we don't have always the healthiest messages in our media about what relationships should look like or um how we practice healthy things in relationships. Um, so I will say over the course of I, I've been doing this work for about eight and a half years, and, I have seen a shift in how people talk about this and people's willingness to talk about this, which has been really nice. Um, I think that when I first started, there were a lot more conversations about why this even needed to happen. And I found that over time, there's more and more attention being paid to the necessity of this education early and often.
5: I mean, that's obviously it's such a huge topic, but I, I, you know, I see things certainly like uh over the last couple of years the nfl for example which has not never been really the best, the, the 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 bastion of <laughs> forward thinking of treatment or presentation of women but in the last couple of years the nfl not having a tolerance uh for uh several players um uh, assaulting women i would think that that could have an impact uh you know especially on uh, boys who have some of these these NFL players as stars
3: I think that I think that that's true and I think that the attention that has been paid in the media to domestic and sexual violence has really created an opportunity for more conversation. It's really created an opportunity um, for us to have broader conversations as, you know, as a society about like why this is happening. Like what are the things that cause it to happen? Unfortunately, I think we oftentimes deal with this after it already has, right? We oftentimes, you know, the NFL is responding to a problem. They're not being proactive in looking at why this happens and how they support that happening um, through, you know, fairly unhealthy portrayals of masculinity um, and allow for that to be perpetuated um, and also kind of devaluing and sexualizing and stigmatizing women as well. Um, so both of those things that they are are known for, right? Are things that allow for violence happening, and you know, although they are certainly responding to problems as they come up, they're not really looking at the long term, like and bigger, bigger picture impact.
5: And what are some of those uh, positive uh, uh, precursors or or role models that that are out there in the media that that you've started to see in the last? you know 10 years of your of your career.
3: Yeah, I mean I think there's some great work being done um especially by I mean a lot of nonprofits, right? A lot of um agencies. There's an agency called Futures Without Violence um that is addressing violence in sports culture, right, and healthy masculinity and how we promote that. So um, Portland Public Schools, and we are actually working at Raphael House with Portland Public Schools and the Defending Childhood Initiative in Multnomah County to um, pilot a um, program called Coaching Boys Into Men. So it's a program for sports coaches to teach their male student-athletes about healthy masculinity and healthy relationships. So we're seeing more and more attention being paid to, like, how do we actually just make things healthier?
5: <laughs> and which is absolutely, that's a very difficult challenge to have. Absolutely. Uh, this is Phil Bassey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with Megan Kovacs from the Raphael House. We're going to take a short musical break and we'll be right back. Phil it's the Nonprofit Hour. I am pleased to be talking with Megan Kovacs from Raphael House today. Now, now Raphael House is—it's the second oldest domestic violence shelter in Portland. What what do you know about the history of uh, how the shelter came about, and then also how its function has changed over the years?
3: Um. So. In the, you know, late 60s and early 70s during, you know, the women's rights movement, the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, people started paying more attention as a culture to domestic violence and how often it was happening. Um, You know, those social justice movements really gave names to things that people and definitions to things that people didn't previously have names and definitions for. Um, And that then resulted in, a lot of, or at least some, resources being developed in the community. Um, so things like domestic violence shelters started popping up. Not that you know domestic violence quote-unquote shelters didn't exist. They Before, they were just, you know, people's houses. Um, a hotline was someone's kitchen phone, um, the lady in the, you know, community who was identified as the person who would help you if you needed that support. Um, so it became a more formalized process, you know, sort of in the 70s. And that's when um, Raphael House started. And it was just by a group of people who, you know, really, who knew that this was a problem, who understood that this was a problem and knew that our community needed better types of, of support for people who were experiencing domestic violence and and I would think that it's not only
5: providing the shelter but I mean it must be a very scary prospect somebody needs to reboot their life mm-hmm. they need to find uh, new context for it new social structures potentially new jobs I mean and and how much does the Raphael house provide that and and how what, what 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 does it provide in, the, in terms of those resources?
3: So we really focus on providing holistic support. We're the largest shelter in Multnomah County um, and one of the largest in Oregon. Um, and we really try to support every family that comes to Raphael House from the minute they walk in the door with the things, the basic needs that they have. So, you know, clothing, food, toothbrushes, um, And through that process, really working with them to help them set goals for themselves about like what healing is going to look like for them, Um, what really thinking about, you know, what they need in their life and how they are going to, you know, find those things and access those things. And that's really our role um, as advocates at Raphael House is to help a family through that process, right? Help connect them with the resources. We oftentimes, you know, refer to ourselves as gatekeepers because we know what all of the systems look like. And domestic violence survivors have to interact with pretty much every system that exists from the Department of Human Services to the housing system to the homelessness system, oftentimes. Um, So advocates work with families to help make connections um, to all of those systems and help support them through that process and everything from, you know, supporting them by actually physically being there to helping them know how to tell their story to a DHS caseworker versus how they're going to tell their story in court. Um, we also, you know, provide resources like support groups and counseling, things to help a person heal from the trauma of domestic violence. Um, We have job skills training classes. We have ready to rent classes. We have financial planning classes. Um, We have a really great program called our Advocacy Center. And that's a space for families to come back and continue to access resources. Um, They can access resources in the Advocacy Center while they're in shelter and also after they've left for as long as they need to um, and keep coming back to, you know, go to support groups and stay connected with the community and stay connected with advocates. Um, They, we also do more fun things like wellness nights, like we have volunteers come in and give haircuts and give massages and, you know, just make people feel supported and help people to feel supported and heal from what they've experienced. We also um, have a really pretty strong focus on helping people access safe, affordable and long-term housing. Um, Our shelter is an emergency shelter, which means people can't stay very long. And after um, experiencing the trauma of domestic violence, oftentimes people do need a safe house. Um, They need somewhere to stay immediately afterward. But after their stay at shelter is up, um, we want to help them transition into safe, affordable, and long-term housing. And we know that's very difficult in Portland, <laughs> especially right now. Um, so we have two full-time advocates on staff who work with families both while they're in shelter and also after they've left to help continue to support them um, for you know up to two years after they've left shelter.
5: Um, Megan, can you talk some about the numbers um, in Multnomah County? How many Cases of abuse there are. Uh, how many uh, families? How many women? Uh, is Raphael House working with. Uh, what 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 sort of scope can you help outline?
3: Sure. Um, statistics and I'm not entirely sure about statistics in Multnomah County specifically, um, but we know that. Nationally, one in four women experience domestic violence. Um, So this is something that happens to a lot of people. And not everyone needs to come to shelter who is experiencing domestic violence. But we also know that even the people who do need to come to shelter, oftentimes there aren't enough resources there. Um, There are only three shelters in Multnomah County. And I can say, you know, in the past eight and a half years of working at Raphael House, there's never a day when we're not full. There's never a day when there aren't multiple people calling um, to access our shelter or to, you know, try to find resources in the community to help support them through the process of having experienced domestic violence. Um, So this is there's a huge need in our community for resources and for supporting people who are experiencing this.
5: This is the Nonprofit Hour with Phil here. I am talking with Megan Kovacs from Raphael House. We're going to take another short music break and we'll be right back.
6: We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise, you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. Now marriage can be a source of joy and love and mutual support, but why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? We raise girls to see each other as competitors, not for jobs or for accomplishments, which I think can be a good thing, but for the attention of men. We teach girls that they cannot be sexual beings in the way that boys are. Feminist. The person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, it, up it, round round in it, it on it, it, diamond, it, my diamond.
5: It, this, rock, it, this is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm Phil Bussey, talking with Megan Kovacs from the Raphael House. One one of the things that that, that you've talked about uh, is is not only providing. Uh, the care and the immediate uh, assistance, which Raphael House uh, does, but also this idea of, of preventative medicine of sorts. And you work with a lot of legislators. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this Multnomah County Defending Childhood initiative, or is it an initiative? Yes. What, is that? what does it mean? How does it work? What's the impact?
3: Um, so that was that was started through a grant, um, I believe, through the Department of Justice, um, and we are one of eight sites nationally. Um, so in Multnomah County, we have a domestic violence coordination office. Um, so Annie Neal is our domestic violence coordinator in Multnomah County, um, and. That office houses the Defending Childhood Initiative, which um, is something that I work very closely with um, on implementing the Coaching Boys Into Men program. And they, um, the folks who work on the Defending Childhood Initiative also work very closely with Portland Public Schools to make sure that, um, you know, there's a focus and intention on understanding the trauma that kids experience, understanding, um, you know, the adverse childhood experience measures, um, and how that has impacts on children's behavior and children's development and children's learning throughout the course of their school life. Um, they, the defending childhood initiative, Erin Fairchild is the coordinator of that program and she works really closely, um, Also with the Multnomah County Youth Commission, which is another great um, youth-led body that focuses on addressing domestic and sexual violence as well as police violence and gang violence and other types of violence that um, youth have identified affects them. Um, So there's a lot of work being done in Multnomah County to really look at and think about how this affects our community largely. I want to
5: talk a little bit about the just organizational challenges that a place like Raphael House has. I mean, obviously doing great work, both providing immediate shelter um, as well as uh, this sort of wider trying to shift some of the, the, the paradigms and the attitudes and behavior.
3: How does it get funded? We rely on so much support from the community. Um, We do get some funding from government grants, um, from the state and from the county, but really it is the generosity of our community that keeps us running. Um, We could not do it without people in our community really recognizing that this is something that needs to continue to exist. Yeah, that's tough
5: because, I mean... Oftentimes, uh, preventative programs like the Defending Childhood or the Outreach in Portland Public Schools, those are programs that, that uh, uh, a dollar spent now is $10 saved later, whether it's emergency uh, medical services or it's uh, prisons or whatever it is, but those are often not uh, the easiest to, to attract funding to, unfortunately.
3: They're not very tangible. Education and prevention aren't tangible things, right? We can't, you know, commodify essentially how much education or is actually preventing um, domestic violence from happening. How much domestic violence are we preventing? That's a hard thing to measure in the short term, right? Um, but I think that our community has really gained an understanding more and more of the importance of it and the importance of investing in you know the long-term prevention efforts
5: and and how is uh, how is multnomah County doing compared to other counties that you know of either within Oregon or, or nationally
3: um, I think that we do have some really progressive programs and we do have some really great infrastructure, not only in Multnomah County, but in Oregon as well, especially around domestic and sexual violence prevention. We have a lot of really great efforts that happen. I chair a committee for the Attorney General Sexual Assault Task Force. There's also, we also have a coalition that addresses domestic and sexual violence statewide. Um, you know, And we have some really great prevention policy in place in schools as well. We have a Healthy Teen Relationship Act that was sponsored by now Multnomah County Commissioner Jules Bailey um, that requires all schools to address healthy relationships and um, have support for folks who are experiencing dating violence. So we have some good infrastructure there. Um, I think that we are very lucky to live in the community that we live in. It's
5: good to hear. It's good to hear. It's nice to be proud of Multnomah County. (laughs) It is. It is. And and so you had started at Raphael House uh through AmeriCorps, is that correct? I
3: did, yes.
5: That's a uh, AmeriCorps is it's both wonderful but a tough way to get going and
3: I mean you have to
5: You have to be you, dedicated, I you, imagine. You do.
3: I mean you have to be you also have to be privileged enough to be a volunteer essentially for a year. Um but it was an incredible opportunity, um to really See the work that Raphael House was doing, and invest myself in that. Um, and then I was very lucky that they gave me a real job after that.
5: <laughs> and so, uh, uh, the Americorps program is is a, is a two year commitment. It was one year. One year. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you've been at Raphael House since then.
3: I have. Yeah, eight and a half years in total. Um, I love this work. Um, you know, I as an Americorps started. This education program at in its current form at Raphael House, um, our executive director was really focused on providing education to the community and not just continuing to provide resources and support as this was happening, but really take that step back and look at why this is happening um, and how we can change that. So she was really invested um, and still is really invested in providing in providing education in the community. And, you know, that was Having an AmeriCorps start the program, I think, was a really good way to kind of see if that was going to work. Um, And then after that year was up, they decided that it did. (laughs) Um, And I've been continuing the program ever since.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I would think, obviously, um, you need to love this work. But it would also be incredibly difficult to love this work in terms of you're not always seeing the best face of humanity.
3: It's true. And that can be hard and can be challenging. But I think that the benefit of doing education is that it's hopeful. There is hope that things can change. And I have hope that things can change.
5: You sound like a very optimistic person. (laughs) Megan Kovacs from Raphael House. (laughs) This is Phil It's This has been Uh, An interview with the Nonprofit Hour, we will go out with one more musical selection.
3: Thank you.
1: That's all for the Nonprofit Hour this week. We'd like to thank our guests, David Perry of Zenger Farm and Megan Kovacs of Raphael House. For a list of songs featured in this episode, check out the Nonprofit Hour on Facebook. You can also find us on SoundCloud or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Nonprofit This week's Nonprofit Hour is produced by me and Kirkpatrick. Many thanks to Solomon Murphy for all his hard work and for his story on the Bravo Youth Orchestra. Shout out to our hosts, Julie Falk and Phil Bussey, and to the Media Institute for Social Change for making this show possible. This is X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.